Bible kind of guy. Uh, I, I think particularly on this topic, it, we don't want to extend past what the scriptures say. We want to stay very close to the text. At the same time, you're the parent of your kids and I'm not. And so that's my, that's my warning. We're not going to say anything crazy, but also if your kids are in here, we're going to open the Bible and say what the Bible says. So if they can read, you're already answering some of those questions as a parent. So I will go ahead and pray for us and we will dig in. Uh, King Jesus, this is your day, and you are the King. You are glorious victor and Savior. You have come to defeat Satan, and come to defeat sin, and come to defeat death, and to give us life, and to give us freedom, and to make us alive. You are the new Adam, who's undone the works of the old Adam. You are the Savior, who has undone the works of the devil. You are our God and we worship you. Uh, please, Jesus, whenever we come to one of these heavy topics, I, I just pray for an extra measure of grace for myself and for us, that you'd help us to hear your word. You'd help me not to wander from the text. You'd help me not to overstate things or go beyond or out of bounds in any way. And that the things that are ultimately just of me would be forgotten, but the things of you, the things of your word, the things of your Holy Spirit, Jesus, would glorify your holy name, would bring us great joy, and would move today. We love you, Jesus, and we pray these things in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So somehow, in God's divine providence and sovereignty, we come to the Halloween season, and I find myself in a text about Satan, malevolent evil spirits, or spiritual warfare. So here we are uh, once again. Uh, it is better at this facility. At our last facility, we had uh, the haunted house, if you were part of the church at that point in time. I don't know if you remember that. You come into church, and there's just scary stuff everywhere, and you have to warn parents beforehand. Everyone has to take their kids up the elevator and back. Welcome to church, everyone. Happy Halloween, that kind of thing. Uh, it was chaos, and my kids cried, um, but that is life. Many kids cried, um, but hey, we're here, and that's not happening right now. Um, now, what's important as we, we, we get into this topic, I want us to have an understanding of Satan by the book. By that I mean we want to stay very, 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 very close to the Bible. Lots of people say lots of things that don't have anything to do with anything the Bible says on this topic, right? I'm at my in-law's house putting a baby to bed, watching TV for five seconds, it's Halloween season, and there's ten movies that I'm afraid of as I'm watching it, hoping my kids don't come in in the middle of the commercial when I'm just watching like those Yukon men in the middle of the day, right? People have wrong assumptions. I have a shelf in my library that sits behind my desk where my kids don't just grab it, and it's my section devoted to the topic of Satan, spiritual warfare, etc. Now, here's the problem with that shelf is that I wouldn't recommend a single book on the shelf to you because they're all horrible and have nothing to do with what the Bible says, and that's a problem. And I'll post it on the city, by the way. There's like three authors I recommend on this topic, and two of them have been dead for like two or 300 years. Uh, needless to say, we want to stay close to the Bible. And what the Bible is clear on is the gospel reality that Jesus Christ came to fix something that human beings broke. Human beings in league with Satan rebel against God, and Jesus comes to save us and crush and defeat Satan, Genesis 3. God makes a promise. We break everything, and God makes a promise from day one that one is going to come, and he's going to crush the head of that snake, crush the one who human beings in league with him rebelled against God. That's good news, because Jesus has come. Which means we don't need to have fear in this topic. We don't need to have fear on the subject because the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, in his love for us, has rescued us. He's set us free. He's made us alive together with God. He's liberated us from the dominion of Satan and the dominion of the world, which we will talk about and unpack. And he's liberated us to a life in Christ and to a life with God. And that's the gospel. That's what he came to do. He came to undo that work. And so we can open the topic and look. So let's go ahead and try and understand Satan by the book. Uh, let's start in verse, I think we're in 27. So there's, an, there's some interesting stuff going on here that we kind of have to untangle as we look to what Jesus is saying. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, we have some on the table over there. Feel free to get up and grab one. Uh, Jesus says this in 27. Peace I leave with you. 
My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Not just in the topic of Satan, in the topic of life. This is what Jesus has come to do. He's come to bring us peace, but not peace as the world gives it. What does the world give in peace? The best thing the world gives us in peace, in my opinion, I think could be best articulated by sort of a ceasefire. Uh, an end to hostility in the sense that, 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 that there's no one actively warring against each other, right? You're driving in the van, everyone has yelled at each other, but you're going to church, so we got to settle things down, and we got to be cool when we get here, and so somebody yells and everyone stops talking, that's not peace. Right? That's not peace. Maybe no one's yelling, but that's not peace. That's peace as the world gives it. The world gives peace that's fleeting and failing and, uh, and doesn't last. You find your wholeness, your, your purpose, your identity, and your job, maybe. And it only takes that new boss, missing the promotion, not getting the raise, or just a client you don't like, and all of a sudden it's no longer your savior, right? You live somewhere, you think you need to move somewhere else, because if you could just move somewhere else. My kids and I were driving, and we saw a neighborhood literally a, a block away from us, but they've got sidewalks. I live in the park of Seattle without sidewalks, but a block from us they have sidewalks. And my kids are like, ooh, sidewalks, we can ride our bikes, we should move here, this would be a great place to live. Sidewalks. I get it. It's not going to fix our problem, but, but peace is the world gives. If we could just fill the empty hole in our life with something, anything, the problem is those things are fleeting. But Jesus, Jesus comes to bring a different peace. Uh, this word here, when it's translated in the Septuagint, that's a Greek Old Testament, is where we get this word you may have heard. It's a common word. It's called shalom. It means peace. But the peace that God brings is a different kind of peace than the world brings. The peace that God brings, and when you hear the word peace in the Bible, please, it is not an absence of hostility. It is a fullness of life. Do you see the difference there? It is not an absence of hostility. It is a fullness of life. Jesus has come to give us a fullness, a wholeness, to show us how life actually works best, and that's a life glorifying God and enjoying Him with everything we've got, living a life passionately knowing God. And that in and of itself, when we take that with us in the different activities that we do, whether you're a plumber or electrician or a software guy or whatever your thing might be, or maybe you're taking the kids to the park, you're teaching your kids, whatever you're doing, when you bring that glory of God, pointing to His beauty and the enjoyment of Him, it changes absolutely everything else, and that's wholeness. That's wholeness. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Why is it important that he's saying this? Because he's about to tell us about two things. He's been talking about the cross, which he's been talking about extensively since chapter 13, which I didn't even preach. We can go back through it. This is the whole foreshadow. He's coming. He's going to the cross to die on the cross, to pay the price for our sins, to glorify his Father, to set us free, to make us whole, to give us life. But something he knows about these guys is that he understands that, and they don't. They don't understand the vast significance of what he is about to do to pay the price for their sins, to defeat Satan, to give them life, and to ultimately change the world and bring the kingdom of God. Now, of course, our problem is, is that though we can say that, 15 seconds later we forget it. But I think it is fascinating that he's about to tell us the cross, and yes, he's even about to tell us about the ruler of this world, who is Satan. Before he even tar starts talking to about that, us about these things, he says, let not your hearts be troubled, which is the thing that we started with in 14 and 1. He comes back to it. He's like, I bring peace. I bring peace. Okay, here we go. So verse 28, you heard me say to you, you heard me say to you, I am going away. This means the cross. And I will come to you, which is the good news that they don't even understand. Because once someone dies on a cross, they don't come to you. They don't bring comfort to you. They don't visit you. They don't resurrect from the dead. They don't send their Holy Spirit to manifest their presence. And they don't put the world back the way it's supposed to be, where you get to live with Jesus forever. But he knows that. They don't. Okay? So he says, I come to you as several meanings. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. I don't think that he means that they don't love him at all. 
I don't, I don't think that's what he's after. They're certainly going to love him in a new and beautiful and special way on the other end of the cross, on the other end of the resurrection. They will for sure. Um, but what I think here we're really after uh, is this idea that when you heard me say, I'm going away, I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. If they understood fully who he was in the fullness of who he is and what he is doing, uh, bringing glory to the Father and joy to his people, they'd be excited and stoked. But things keep happening, like Peter thinking he can fight off all the guards and Pilate trying to intimidate him and all these other things are about to occur. Right, but this is important. So the Father is greater than I. Now what John's gospel is really clear. If you just took John's gospel, you would have plenty of data. You would have plenty of verses to show, prove, and display the reality of the Trinity. That God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Spirit is God. For goodness sakes, John's gospel, how does it begin? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he's going to continue to have these I am statements. We've pointed out a few times, these ego ami statements. The I am where Jesus is saying, I am the God of the Old Testament in a variety of ways. Right? So it's clear from John's Gospel, Jesus is God. Okay? Now, what did Jesus just say? Well, the Father is greater than I. Well, that's weird and confusing. Uh, what does that mean? So Jesus... The fancy $10, the $10, we'll give this one a $10 rating, is subordinationism. That the Father, that the Son willingly submits to the Father, pointing his life to the Father and saying, He's greater than I. And the Holy Spirit, who is also God, does this. We just saw this last week. We taught on the Holy Spirit last week, where it says, The Father is going to send one in my name, which has the Spirit being sent by the Father and by the Son. And what is the Spirit's activity in the world? He manifests the presence of God in the world, and he points our hearts to Jesus. You can't understand the Bible without God's help. The Holy Spirit moves in our lives and helps us to understand the Scriptures. So what's Jesus doing here? He's doing the Trinity glory dogpile that you're going to see throughout the Bible. The Father's pointing to the Son. The Son's pointing to the Father. The Spirit's pointing to both of them. We get this in Philippians in chapter 2. Right? Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And what is in the context of this is the plan that the Trinity makes before the foundations of the earth to save everything. Before you became a Christian, before you were born, before the earth was created, this is grace. That God would call us to himself. There's nothing we did to earn his love. Now this is a plan hatched by the Trinity, looking down the pipe of history, seeing that humanity would break everything. God makes a plan. God doesn't just crumple it up and throw it in the garbage can. God creates knowing we'd break it and rebel against him, and yet makes a plan before the foundations of the earth to come and save us from ourselves. Now, in so doing, why do I say all this? Philippians says that he did, not account, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Our problem with English is that word needs a bunch of words to make any sense out of it. What that word grasped is really after is to be taken by force. So Jesus did not count equality with God the Father as a thing to be taken by force. What does that mean? That as the plan hatched, Jesus doesn't stand there and say, well, hey, I'm God too here, man. You go. You go to the cross. You go save those people. He goes. He comes to save. He comes to save us. He comes to save us from ourselves. And he does so before we love him. Before we love him, he loved us, and that's grace. Why is that so important? Because we so quick switch to trying to earn God's love. It's his sovereign grace and mercy in our lives to save us from ourselves. Now, what's interesting about this, even as we look at this topic, as he's pointing to the glory of the Father, as he's doing this, how different is this than what Satan does? We'll see. We'll get there. I just want you to kind of have that footnote. And what you kind of need to do at this point in time, Hopefully your Bible's open and you can see this. This is one of those things I have to prove to you because I'm going to say it and then I have to prove it to you because I don't just say things. I actually want you to see it in the scriptures. There's some air quotes here, right? There's a glory air quote at the beginning of this paragraph. 
where he's pointing to the glory of God the Father. What do you mean glory? There's a parenthetical statement. There's a parenthesis being created. I hope we'll see it, and I have to prove it to you now. And of course, you can disagree with me, but here we go. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. What's our response to the beauty of God and his movement in the universe is joy. It's rejoicing. I think we have these words like glory, right? It says glory in the Bible, and I say glory all the time. And I think our problem is, is the words like glory or words like honor. Or we, we don't necessarily have the compartments for words like these. And so our tendency in 2014 is to just to simplify everything. If I don't have a compartment for it, why don't I just ditch it? Well, because God uses the glory, the word glory all the time. That's why we don't just ditch it. To him be the glory forever and ever, amen. Glory, the act of glory, comes from this Hebrew concept, which means like weightiness. So we point to the beauty and the weightiness of God, and as we do so, we enjoy and rejoice in who he is. And if we understood what Jesus was doing here, if they understood clearly what Jesus was doing, submitting and laying his life down to point to the beauty and the wonder of God, they would have rejoiced. But all they know is their friend's going, saying that he's going to go to a cross and die, and it doesn't quite make any sense to them yet. But we'll get there. So will they. Okay. Verse 29. And now, I have told you before it takes place. Something you'll see is really clear, and we kind of have to work out some of the mechanics. We have this odd stuff, right? Judas, we find out, is a thief in John's Gospel, I think it's in 12 makes a plot and is empowered by Satan in verse 13 to betray Jesus. He's responsible for that, so is Satan. Pontius Pilate willingly and gladly puts Jesus on the cross, and he will have to answer for that. There's crowds crawling out, crucify, crucify. You know, the only innocent man who ever lived. But what does he say to Pilate? Hey, man. Okay, that's a quote. That's a remix. He didn't say, hey, man. <laughs> say it, and I, that sounds irreverent. But Jesus said, hey, listen. You, Pontius, you little tiny peon dictator, I could get angels here, and they would wreck shop on this whole party. I could, I could call down armies of angels. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. No one took his life from him. He could have stopped it, but he didn't because it was the plan before the foundations of the earth that he would pay the price for my sin and for your sin, the infinite price for our infinite sin so that we would be infinitely forgiven, loved, rejoicing, and knowing God in an infinite and forever way. That's what he came to do, is to save us from ourselves, not just today, not just tomorrow, but eternally into eternal life. So what can he do here? He can exert, though, his sovereignty and his humanity. We've got to be careful as evangelical Christians. Here's our problem. We spent so much of the last century defending the divinity of Christ that we've missed out on some of his humanity, that he doesn't know everything when he's in human form and incarnate. Uh, Bruce Ware has written a fantastic book on this particular topic. Uh, I will post those two 200-year-old guys and the one new guy on the city, and I will put that Bruce Ware book up there, too, uh, if you want to get It's little, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful. Um, but here he is exerting what's been revealed to him by the Father. Just so you know, I know how this is going to go down. I know how this is going to end. And why is his sovereign hold so important? Why is this so important? Here's the deal. Have you ever lived your life as a human being, and it occurs to you that sometimes it seems like the bad guys are winning? Sometimes it's hard to make sense of things for your own children and say, well, why is it that way? And honestly, we've grown very cynical, I think, as a people. We, we're sort of resolved to the bad guys always winning. I even think it's interesting. We have a rule in my house. You don't play bad guys, and the bad guys don't win. And that means we have to have some serious conversations. Does that mean the good guys always win? Well, yes and no. 
at the end of the day, Jesus Christ will settle the score. All scores will be tallied up, and he will put an end to all injustice and all nastiness, and he will move in the decisive, final way, and every tear will be wiped, and every wrong will be wiped out. Period. Here on earth, it's not always that way. And yet God is working in the midst of the pain and the suffering. Romans 8 He's undoing. I think it's a C.S. Lewis quote that my kid's story Bible uses. Making all the sad things from Chronicles of Narnia, making all the sad things come untrue. We don't always see it. You're not God. I need to remind myself this regularly. I'm not God, and if I thought of the plan to save the world, it probably would have involved a spaceship and an asteroid, some guns or something. But he comes in a way we don't expect to pay the price for our sins, to save us for ourselves, and to redeem us from God. Now here. I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Right? We see this in uh, Matthew chapter 24. And they say, hey, what about the temple, and what about the end of all things? Well, here's the signs, here's the seasons, here's what it's going to look like. Now one thing that I want us to see in all this, and you might be sitting there thinking, I thought this was going to be a sermon about Satan. I want you to see that even in this section, he's a minor player. We get this wrong sense that he's like the king of hell and things are crazy there. And we miss the reality that Jesus is the king of all things. And he's not in a cosmic arm wrestling match with Satan. And you show me a text about malevolent spiritual forces, and I will show you a text in the scripture that is meant to point to the glory of God and his movement in the universe and how much better he is than those malevolent spiritual forces. So here we go. And now I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe, which they do a lot in John's gospel on the other end of the resurrection. They're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah, we remember when he said that. For the ruler of this world is coming. Now again, this, this means that he has, he's working through these people to try and get this guy who he knows is coming, Messiah, the one who's going to put everything back. Satan is moving against the one. You know that it says, I believe it's in 1 Corinthians, that they understand the scriptures better than we do. That they believe his name and they shudder when they hear it. Speaking of malevolent spiritual forces. So Satan actually thinks, I think. Now this is where I, might, I may be going beyond the text. And so, hey, push back. I think he actually thinks he can win still. I think he thinks he still can pull this thing off. He knows the one who's going to crush the head of the snake. That's him. Is going to come. Uh-oh, he's here. I mean, we even see this uh, in Mark's gospel. When they're about to get, when there's this, demonized guy with the pigs and their response is what are you doing here? It's not time yet. You're here. What are you doing here? They recognize him. They see him. Right? So the ruler of this world. Now John is very specific. John doesn't mess around. He just talks about Satan. He doesn't mess around uh, with t talking about any of the other things that are involved. By ruler, we mean the one that seems like he's in charge. And of this world, when John says world, there's a few ways you can use the word world. And the word world here means the human systems or even the, the spiritual systems that are aligned against God. The things that are at work in the world against God. Now, it doesn't have to be like crazy horror movie for something to be against God, and we need to be careful to check that. Uh, I'll, I'll have a faux pas. I'll quote C.S. Lewis twice. How about that? In uh, the book Screwtape Letters, if you ever read it. Fascinating book. I think it does a very good job of imagining what it might be like beyond what we can see. It's about a senior demon and a junior demon and the senior demon's t teaching the junior demon how to mess with a guy. And he, and he really shows off in one of these letters. There. You only get one side of the correspondence. And he says, hey, I, I scared him. I jumped out and woo, boogie woogie, did whatever. He says, don't do that. 
Don't, don't do that. It's not about the jumping out and the boogie-woogie. It's about the reality that the world that we know tends to be aligned against the things of God all the time, and no one has any of the stuff from the haunted house there. We need to be very careful because those things are more subtle and harder to detect than we realize. So he's the ruler of this world, those world systems that are working against God. So where do we see who he is? Genesis 3. The snake that shows up, what does he say to Adam and Eve? Oh, there's that nice tree over there. You could, you could be like God. You could be like God if you eat from that tree. God doesn't want you to eat from the tree. If you eat the tree, you'll be like God. What do we know about human beings just from a basic read of Genesis 1? I'm just talking Bible here. What does the Bible say in Genesis 1? That God created humans in his image and likeness. I'm not off-roading here. It's right there. So, however much like God wanted to make humans, he already did. And Satan pushes it. And, and what is this that he's trying to entice them to? He wants them to displace God from his right place in the center of the universe. So when we make our job, our family, our friends, what people think about us, our possessions, where we stand in the world, our status, our good works, our good deeds, the ultimate thing in our life, rather than God, what have we done? We've displaced God from his right place in the center of the universe. Right? A, a book just came out that NPR was reviewing uh, that was about having spirituality without religion and without God. What are they trying to do? It's really just repackaged Zen Buddhism, by the way, if you happen to come across that book by Sam Harris. What have they done? He's trying to displace God from his right place in the center of the universe and stand at the center of meaning and purpose. Himself, his own conscience, his own mind. Guess what? All of a sudden, it's not so haunted house. Right? Uh, our problem is that we, we love the extremes. Just stay close to the text and see what it says. The ruler of this world. Uh, Revelation 12, 9 identifies that Satan, that, spear, that snake as Satan. There it is in 12 and 9 and somewhere else. I think it's in 20 in Genesis. Um, and John in 8 and 44 says of his work and activity, he was a liar from the beginning and a murderer. And of course, this is a place where he's with the Pharisees and he says, you're not children of Abraham, you're children of the devil, and it gets really offensive and nobody likes him anymore. Pharisees don't really like Jesus pretty much ever. But there it is. Now, this is important because I think sometimes we can, we can have this approach uh, in certain ends of the Christian family, right? Let's call it that. Let's call it the Christian family because not we're smarter than they are, and they're out there, and their things make them not Christians and us better than them. But there are members of our family, so to speak, who get what we will call hypersensitive, perhaps, about this subject. You're on your way to church. Your car dies. Satan stopped your car, and you didn't get to get to church. Must have been him. Of course, then the tow truck man comes and picks your car up, and then you share the gospel with him, and you see that God may have been sovereign over the pistons breaking in the car, and it didn't have anything to do with anybody else, right? But we tend to see spiritual, malevolent spiritual activity behind every bush, and and I don't think that's the case, but sometimes in response to that, because it does get so weird, oh, man, that bookshelf I was mentioning, I got some weird books on there. And you're like, what do you do with a weird book? You don't give it to Goodwill because then somebody else is going to buy your weird book, but it's a book, so you don't put it in the garbage can, but then it's on your shelf, and when someone comes into your office to do some pre-marriage counseling or something, you're like, that book, huh? Ooh. And so there it sits behind my desk, along with the other ones. <laughs> right? it's, a, it's a conundrum. It's a conundrum. Um, but the thing we need to understand is there's more to the world than we see and know. Right? There's more behind it. We're Christians. You ever pray? If you pray, you think there's something behind the world as you see it. Right? In this case, we're talking about malevolent spiritual force. And I think this is important for us as Seattleites. Why? We are in a hyper-spiritual place. Okay? And so how do you minister to your coworker in the break room and says, well, I had this wild spiritual experience. It was crazy. Woo! Had nothing to do with Jesus. And you say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. He's the only way. Well, I had this spiritual experience that seemed to validate what I believe. John Stott, not a quack. Old-timey evangelical 
20th century. I think it's always helpful when you're preaching on Satan. You preach and mention guys like John Stott, right? Because he's not crazy and everyone knows it, right? He's not with us anymore, but he was a great guy. Uh, John Stott, in his book, Baptism and Fullness, which is a great book on the Holy Spirit, points out there are sort of three categories. We have the Holy Spirit could have done it, right? With If it's universal, it must have been God. Uh, you went to Costa Que Pasa, you ate the potato burrito, the ranchero sauce was bad, and all of a sudden you have an experience. <laughs> you have a biological thing, and things got crazy when you were watching Planet of the Apes or whatever, right? Physiological, biological, stuff happens, right? The, the mind, you know, the phrase, the mind plays tricks. Ebenezer Scrooge, I ate a bad potato, right? It's Christmas. I'm trying to get through Halloween to Christmas as quick as I can. Uh, the other, of course, is these malevolent spiritual forces. Now, the thing is, is that I'm not saying you have to go scientific method. It may have been the, the ranchero burrito at Casa Que Pasa. I don't know, right? But, but if you say, okay, well, let's, let's, let's talk about it. Here's what I understand. I understand that the good things come from Jesus, and if it's not from Jesus, it's from the enemy, or it's from the burrito. But you can see, I, I, I'm going to say you had, I'll even say, yeah, sure, you had a spiritual experience. I don't have to prove to you that it was even the burrito. I'm just telling you, if Jesus wasn't involved, it wasn't a good thing, and God wasn't there, and Thomas Brooks, old, dead, awesome, one of the three books I'd recommend, Precious Remedies to Satan's Devices, old British Puritan Thomas Brooks says, Satan doesn't care what's on the gaff, because he uses a gaff, which is a hook, but gaff just sounds cooler. So his thing is, he doesn't care. Thomas Brooks points out, he, Satan doesn't care what you bite. As long as you bite it and it takes you away from Jesus. So all of a sudden, it doesn't have to be a haunted house. It can be money. It can be approval. It can be all of these things that just take our eyes off of God in his glory and enjoying him. Now here's the good news. Now, this is where I try not to be too picky. We have a very, I always want to say this, your Bible's very good. If you're, we use the ESV in preaching, NASB, very good, ESV, very good, Holman Standard, very good translation. But they're trying to get across an idiomatic thing here. So our next verse says this. Um, for the rule, oh, got that. Uh, he has no claim on me. Uh, this is actually an awkward phrase with a bunch of prepositions that says, in me, he has nothing. Now, why is that important? Literally, it means, in me, he has nothing. And what he means is, like, hey, he ain't got nothing on me, right? But in me, he has nothing. And what has Jesus been talking about in John's gospel a ton? The Father is in me. You are in me. The Spirit will be in you. We are together, the people of God, in Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, and Satan doesn't get to be here. There's no room for these malevolent forces here. It's not for us. It's, it's not on us. It doesn't have a hold on us. It doesn't have a hold on him. He conquers death. He conquers Satan. He conquers sin. And the book of Revelation is the final, yeah, it's over. Which you can read when you go home. It's amazing, right? He doesn't have anything on us. We're forgiven, we're redeemed, we're saved, and we're set free. In me, he has nothing. We are so in Christ that Jesus can say of himself in John 8 and 12, we preached this summer, I am the light of the world. And at the same time, in Matthew 5 and 14 through 16, he's going to say, you're the light of the world. Why? Because if you're a Christian, you're in Christ. If you're a Christian, you're in Christ. You belong to him. Not height, nor depth, nor powers, nor principalities could ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I don't care if this was the worst, nastiest, most false religion-y, feeling good about yourself, patting yourself on the back for doing good stuff, or worst, in the pits, in the depths of sin, weak of your life. If you are in Christ, Christ is in you. You are his and you are forgiven. That is the reality of the gospel. He came to defeat Satan. He came to defeat sin came to defeat death. So not only do you not have sin, Satan doesn't have a hold on you. Now, how do we resolve some of these things? Ephesians chapter 2. Oh man, it's almost... Let's do it. So let's go. How does this all work out? Some things you need to understand. So by the way, trying to stay close to the book. So I'm going to flip 
through here because I want my points coming from here, right? We're going to say what this says because this stuff can get weird, so we're going to stay here. So Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, that's who we are apart from Christ, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Satan, we are in the dominion of darkness. Satan is the spiritual head of the dominion of darkness. Because it's a heavy sermon, I'm going to keep reading because this is the good stuff. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love uh, in which he loves us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before that we should walk in them. Praise the Lord. We were in the king, dominion of darkness. If you were not a Christian, when you were not a Christian, you were transferred to the kingdom of light. Okay. Now, at the same time, if you go with me to Romans chapter 5, or just listen, 5 and 12 says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, this is our Genesis 3 problem again, right? And death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Now he's talking about Moses and the Old Covenant. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those uh, even whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Old Adam, new Adam. Apart from Jesus, we're in the old family. Uh, we're uh, in that, that ruler of the world business. We're living our lives opposed to God. But Jesus came to save us from ourselves, because in verse 15, but a free gift is not like the trespass, for many died through one man's trespass. That's Adam. But much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespasses, that's Adam's, Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Whew. Okay, let's put it together with Colossians. Colossians starting in 1 and 5. So there's the earthly head, Adam, the spiritual head, Satan. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. This is Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. Who's over the whole thing? Jesus is over the whole thing. All things were created through him and for him. It's for his glory. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is, listen to this, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything in him might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus comes, dies on the cross, and he does some displacing. From our lives, displaces these malevolent spiritual forces, namely Satan, and displaces our earthly relation in sin. Adam makes us new and frees us and liberates us. We'll put it together. We have to get around a lot. Okay, so what does that mean for us as Christians? So if Jesus has defeated Satan, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this. I think he's right. That the cross was like the lobbing off of the head of a dragon, and the tail is still whipping around. That's Spurgeon's assessment. So Satan's done for. It's over. It's finished, and yet he's still at work. How do I know that? Because I have the rest of the Bible on the other end of the resurrection. So what does this mean for us? Uh, as Christians, again, not every time the engine seizes up, it has negative spiritual connotations. We as Christians live in the world. We're dealing with the flesh, the world, and the devil. Helpful, helpful, helpful designation. John's gospel tears those apart. The flesh is the, the stuff inside of me that's got to go. The stuff inside of me that still wants me to be at the center of everything. The world, 
cosmos, these systems that are orchestrated and organized against God, are enticing. They draw us in. Proverbs uses all this language of this sort of like call, the allure of these things. We just come on in. Everything's fun and green. It's like Pinocchio getting carried away to that scary island. Gave me nightmares as a kid. And yes, the devil. So what do we do? Uh, 1 John chapter 3. How do we understand this in our lives? Uh, 1 John chapter 3. Uh, 1 John, in many ways, is an elaboration of John's gospel. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes the practice of sinning... I don't have time for it, but I'm going to pause here. So this is one of those verses that someone comes to me on a regular basis. It's awkward. No one's in the room that did that. But I've had people in my life in Christ come to me, and maybe this is you, and this was me at one point in time, and say, it says, whoever makes a practice of keep on sinning, I keep on sinning. I'm concerned I'm not a Christian. I keep sinning. I'm concerned I'm not a Christian. That's a lie. It's not the truth. Why? Because John already told us in chapter 1, for starters, I write this to you little children, that you may not sin, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with God the Father in Christ Jesus. So he's not saying you're not sinning. This is where the, the tense is really important. Uh, what he's saying here is, whoever makes a practice, whoever keeps on sinning a sin, and you're like, well, I'm a human being, and it turns out I keep doing that too. What I think John is really getting after here within the context of the letter is if you keep sinning in a way, and you're like, God doesn't care that I'm sinning in this way. I know his word says it, me and Jesus are homeboys. He's like my roommate, and we're BFFs forever, and he doesn't care what I do. That's what he's talking about. Because then what you're saying is, I didn't really need the cross. I didn't really need forgiveness. I didn't really need to be redeemed. I didn't really need the blood of Christ. I don't really need to be dependent on God. Everyone who makes practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Praise the Lord. Jesus is perfect and sinless. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. If you make that practice of sinning, as if you don't need the cross and you don't need redemption, as far as John is concerned here, you're still in the dominion of darkness, with Satan as the head and Adam as our earthly head, which puts us in jeopardy because we inherit his sin. Uh, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to what? To destroy the works of the devil. So yeah, some members of the Christian family can get weird with this stuff, but if we try and just like not talk about it anymore, we miss one of the things that John is saying right now. This is the thing that Jesus came to do. Now let's be clear. This isn't the only thing Jesus came to do. And I think in John's mind, he so equates sin, the devil, and the world, that in that, that's really dealing with it all. But he calls it out as Satan. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Right? That's why we got into this mess. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot be kept, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he the one who does not love his, nor uh, the one who does not love his brother. Now John straight up told us, you can't love your, hate your brother and love God at the same time. You can't be actively working against your brother and saying, I'm a Christian, while you're actively like, I don't know, doing damage and harm to your, to your brother, to someone else. You can't do both. They don't go together. They don't go together. Uh, Peter. Maybe Peter will give us some more clarity. Peter in chapter 5 says this in 6. So what do we do? How do we deal with this stuff? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion, like a, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Resist him, firming your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. 
It's happening to you. It's happening to me. It's happening to the brothers and sisters in China. A call to get away from Jesus towards the love of the world, the love of self, and actual malevolent spiritual forces working that in your life is happening here and it's happening there. And again, it's not always the haunted house. It's usually much, much more subtle than that. So what do we do? Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What's our number one thing we do in resisting the devil? Again, I love the Christians in the family. You're in kind of weirdville, okay? I'm, I, that's probably disrespectful. I want to find the nicest way to say that while saying I totally disagree. Strongly, strongly disagree. We're still being loving and respectful, which is sometimes difficult. But you need to know where we stand on our church in this stuff, okay? So if someone has a cure for your malevolent spiritual forces problem, if it involves getting your house really oily or magic words of any kind, by magic words I mean a particular formula, you just need to say this and it will stop and go away. As if God can't hear you if you call out to him in some other way. This is the same, this is true for healing. Oh, you prayed for healing, but you didn't say it this way. You think the sovereign God of the universe, who's the one at work in the world, doesn't condescend to us to help us in our aid and in our need, in our need for his aid? He does. What does he give us? Let's start with, you know, a great striper song or a striper uh, record, Shout at the Devil. He doesn't start there. And if you're into thrash metal and you have not experienced stripers, I would really encourage you to check out that record. I digress. It's not about you. It's not about your coming. How do we live a sober-minded life? You humble yourself before the Lord. We live lives empty-handed and dependent on God. We seek to understand how the world works, how the systems work, how everything works in light of who Jesus is, what the Bible says, and what he's done. So every single thing I'm looking to seek to run this as the filter of the lens of my life. He gives us that instruction in John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4. Test the spirits. How? Word of God. Okay. But it's real, right? It's both real and our solution is subtle. Humble yourself before the Lord. Uh, we'll go to one more, Ephesians. Back to Ephesians. Uh, we'll do 17, and then we'll land the plane. So we need to see how this works. Now this I say to you, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, as the ruler of this world. So I punch in there from chapter 2 of Ephesians. Uh, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They are in the spiritual dominion of darkness. They have become callous and then given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. That's not what you learned in Jesus. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in him. There's that preposition again. In him, in him, in him. He has nothing in me. You are in him. The ruler of this world has nothing in me. Uh, to put off your old self. So here's the deal. Which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God, true in righteousness and holiness. You already are new in Christ. Whoever you were, whatever you have done before you met Jesus is wiped out and you are clean. Now, yet we live in this world where we've got these old family habits that seem really deep-rooted in ourselves that we are busy taking off. And you can't just take it off because if you just simply say, oh, this bad habit, you know, I don't know whatever your bad habit is, right? 
your thing, gambling over the foosball table, the thing you got to put aside, if you just say, I'm not going to do that anymore, and you just not do that, you can be just as enslaved to the thing that you've decided not to do as you were when you were doing it. So what do I mean by that? If all you do is say, I'm not going to drink anymore because drinking's going poorly for me, and you stop drinking, and all you think about is, oh, man, I just can't drink, can't drink, can't drink, can't drink, don't drink, don't drink, can't drink, can't drink, don't drink, don't drink. You can be just as enslaved to the thing before you were enslaved to it as when you put it down because what we really actually need to do is not just take off the old self but put on the new self. Take off who you were and put on Christ. Turn from your sin and turn to God. That's repentance. Christianity is not just not sinning. Christianity is turning to Jesus in faith and forgiveness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you who speak the truth with his neighbor, because Jesus is truth, so we speak the truth, even, even little things, right? It's always based on protecting ourselves or not hurting somebody's feelings. For we are members of one another. That's the church. Be angry and do not sin. It's not saying don't be angry. It's just saying don't sin in your anger. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. That's our word right there. <clears throat> Excuse me. Give no opportunity to the devil. What does that mean? If you're in Christ, the devil has no stake or hold upon you. Yet, we make agreements with him in the world. What do I mean by that? The devil's a liar. He's been a liar from the beginning. We tend to believe things that either the world is telling us or that malevolent spiritual forces are telling us, and they're almost always the same handful of lies. Right? They either have to do with your intelligence, your appearance, your relationship with God, your relationship with others, your prominence, your comfort. Well, yeah, I know God's word says that, but comfort is so valuable. <laughs> yeah, that's not what a Christian does, but that's what everybody else is doing. I have a teacher from, the, uh, from Belgium, and apparently uh, he had family members who felt like cheating on their taxes was so ingrained in the system that the people in Belgium, it's the, he described cheating on your taxes as the national pastime of Belgium. And that's what they do. So much so that the government just assumes you're going to cheat on your taxes and builds it into the system. Then as a Christian, one of like three evangelical Christians all of Belgium says, he says to his dad, I'm not going to do that anymore because that's lying and I, I don't need to lie because I'm a Christian and I love Jesus. His dad was furious. He's like, you're a fool. Everybody cheats on their taxes. Well, yeah, but it's lying that I'm a Christian, right? It can be simple things. It can be subtle things. But give no opportunity for the devil. This is another one of those places I have to point out that if you have the King James in your hand, perhaps, or if you grew up in a King James church, you may have heard this sermon, this word opportunity. It's the word, it's a really simple common word. It means place. But in the King James, they got a little flowery, and they used the word foothold. And so you'll hear sermons preached, and if Satan gets a toehold, and they'll put the, the rock-climbing metaphor into the sermon, and he's just got to get a little toe in there because we're in the Northwest, and we talk about rock-climbing and things. And so Satan's just got to get his toe in there, and once he's got his toe in there, you're in trouble, and that's a really great and nice sermon, except for it has nothing to do with the Greek syntax or language opportunities better, places even better. Don't build a room in your house for Satan to come and live. What's influencing you? What's guiding you? What's leading you in life? The ruler of this world, whether it's his systems or him himself, the malevolent spiritual forces, who are you listening to? What are you listening to? What counts? Are you listening to the reality of who you are in Christ? You are more accepted than you can possibly understand, and yet when you believe the lie that you're not smart enough, you don't look a certain way, you don't act a certain way, you don't have certain status, you don't have certain things, you must go after those things no matter what in our survival of the fittest, dog-eat-dog -dog world. I know, I'll be a Christian on Sunday when I'm at church. We're Christians all the time. We're children of light all the time. We're free in Christ all the time, and Satan's always looking for you to build him a guest room uh, in your house. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up, as fits the occasion. Satan tears down, Jesus builds up. That in, then 
that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. Is this, are these the things that, that a humble, these are the things of a humble life or these are the things of your life? Is this how you treat the church? Even as I was saying, well, I wanted to be kind and gracious towards the family who think wrong things about malevolent spiritual forces and Satan. Am I building them up? I need to be careful. So do you. Let's finish out John. So back in John's Gospel. Now I've told you that before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Yes, there are malevolent spiritual forces. Yes, Satan is real. Yes, we believe the Bible. But if you are a Christian, he's got nothing on you. Now here's, remember I said, I said we have these little air quotes. That's why I have to find myself not just landing the plane early. We have to get to the end because I promised we'd get to the end and here we are. For the rule of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father commanded me. How has the Father commanded Jesus? To go to the cross. What did we see? We saw that back up here in our little air quote. You heard me say that I am going away. Rejoicing, that's our other air quote, sorry, under that. And I've told you before, it takes place, that's the cross. So that the world may know that I love the Father with glory. That's our other air quote. That I, the world may know that I love the Father. What glorifies the Father but Jesus crushing the head of the snake, but Jesus saving sinners from themselves, but Jesus ending what Adam started, but Jesus finishing what Satan began, but Jesus coming and saving us from ourselves, Jesus coming to die and save us and to make us right with the God of the universe. So, if you're a Christian... This isn't the spot where you necessarily... Maybe, maybe you got that Ephesian story. Maybe, maybe you're the person who's got to go home. We're in Seattle, right? Maybe you've got to see that, that your magic books and Jesus don't have anything to do with each other and you've got to go home and burn them. That might be you. This is Seattle, and that's what happened in Ephesus. But I think the thing we need, we need to be more careful of, perhaps, because that one's obvious. I've been in that spot. You wake up and you're like, oh, Tibetan Book of the Dead. That needs to go, right? You just know it are the subtle ways we agree. You don't look right. You're right, I don't look right. You don't act right. You're right, I don't act right. You don't have enough stuff. You're right, I don't have enough stuff. He doesn't care what's on the gaff. It's your bike. Is our world and our understanding of reality formed by the book or by the world? He doesn't care. It doesn't have to be a haunted house. He just wants you with your eyes off of Jesus, period. He wants the church and a mess warring against each other. He wants you to be nasty towards your neighbors. He wants you to be more concerned with that stupid color your neighbor painted his mailbox instead of telling your neighbor who Jesus is. That's what he wants from you. He doesn't want him to be saved. He doesn't want you to be saved. He hates you and he wants you to die. And if you're a Christian and you're in this spot, and maybe you're even, maybe those, you know, it's commercial time, right? It's, it's Halloween, and you can't sleep because you saw that stupid thing when you were watching Yukon Men about that thing that I won't even say because it doesn't need to be mentioned. But you need to know who's the victor, who's won, and who's defeated Satan, Jesus. How this thing will end, Satan crushed. How this thing will end, death thrown in the pit, Satan thrown in the pit, Jesus is the victor, and it's gone. Sin's gone. Death's gone. Satan's gone. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ. Nothing can take that away. And maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. And you say, wow, that's a lot to process and download. I have some questions. We'd love to sit down and talk with you and open the Bible with you. Or maybe you're just hearing this. God will give you freedom from whatever you are stuck in Jesus is the Savior who will save you from yourself. Turn from your sin and turn to Him. Believe and be saved. Let's pray. Lord, I pray we'd be people who love the whole book. I pray with confusing passages. What does that mean? We'd be quick to say, 
instead of making stuff up or making guesses, we'd be quick to run through your word and see what you have said and revealed to us. I pray for us that we would not be fixated on malevolent spiritual forces. We'd not even be fixated on sin. We'd be fixated, focused, and obsessed with you, Jesus. The power of your resurrection, Jesus. The power of your cross to save sinners, Lord. The movement that you've moved, Jesus, to save us, to make us your own, that we might live with God forever, that we might live now in a way that echoes into eternity, that we'd hold fast to the truth of your holy scriptures. Lord, Seattle can be a dark place sometimes. I pray that in the darkness we would be light. Our light would not come from our own cleverness, our own ability, but our light would come from the fact that we hold fast and true to your word, Jesus. God, we love you. I pray these things in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.